0: Welcome back to Project Outsiders. If you are returning, thank you so much for coming back and tuning into our podcast. We really appreciate all of your support in joining us along on our journey to improving the foster care system. For those who are new here, welcome to the Foster Care Experience podcast. We are a youth-led social organization that is trying to bridge the gap between youth and care with decision-makers. In today's episode, we want to dive into the experience of indigenous youth in care they in particular have a very unique experience for a couple of reasons one just like black youth they are heavily overrepresented in the child welfare protection services in fact only making up 4.1 percent of the total population in ontario they still represent 30 percent of foster children's making them seven times more likely to be admitted in comparison to their peers as a culture they have been through a lot of abuse with this country and only recently has Canada been trying to rectify the damages that has been done. As you will learn in this episode, their community still faces tremendous amounts of racism, neglect, scarcity of services and resources, and an overall separation from their own land. Today we have Kia Sage. She is an advocate on the Youth for Change Steering Committee for the Ontario Association of Children's Aid Society, along with myself and she is on the Young People's Advocacy Council for Thunder Bay. She took a two year learning management program and fun fact about her, she's a sous chef opening up her own restaurant in the Thunder Bay area. So please go check that out. Here to tell us more is Kia. Welcome.
1: Hello everyone, I'm Kia. Kia Maria Lovegood on Facebook. You're searching for me. I am a 22 year old youth from care. I am technically still in the system. I aged out in December of COVID. That means I have not aged out yet. And I take care of my two younger brothers. They are both youth from care. One has aged out recently, he's 18. And the other one is 17. We all live together here in Thunder Bay. We're from Winnipeg. Um, and we have quite a story to tell from our, our time in care. and it, it would root back to um, my mother, honestly, and her times in care. So I'm really grateful to be here to share her story, to share our story, and to have a great conversation with you as always.
2: Yeah. And like I find that really fascinating because I know that you're from Thunder Bay and any time you step away from like the city and like the rural areas or more populated areas, services just decrease a lot. And I remember you talking about that the first time we had our conversation. And so I want to really, first of all, obviously I want to know more about your story. I know that your brothers are there right now and they might want to like chime in at any point. Of course, I would love them to,
1: um, but I want
2: to really know what it's like just in Thunder Bay.
1: In Thunder Bay, it should be kept in mind that we are deemed the biggest city around us. So uh, we have one mall, one floor. Um, it's, it's pretty great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we have... Two different types of services provided here for youth and care in child welfare. We have Delico and we have Children's Aid. Mm -hmm. There's funding that goes to both for uh, different reasons, but the main problem, other than the lack of funding for not just us, but the regions around us that are even smaller, like Terrace Bay, um, it's it's heart-wrenching because you hear in advocacy meetings of all these great initiatives that are starting out in Toronto, that are starting out in Ottawa, or they're starting out in Alberta, um, but you never hear or have those accesses for our our youth. And like we we recently, Thunder Bay tried to put in an all men's youth, a homeless shelter. Mm -hmm. And that was like, it got pretty far and then it was immediately shut down. Um, there was, cause it wasn't handled correctly and the resources just- Wasn't there. Or weren't, weren't there. Um, and I mean, it's, it's pretty heart-wrenching
3: mm-hmm. to
1: hear about like the EVA's initiative or to hear about um, housing initiatives and funding initiatives that are happening in Ontario. And people are like, yeah, Ontario is doing great, look at this, but it's only accessible to a few youth in our systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also deal with the rampant racism towards Indigenous community members, and which in and minorities in general, but um, here, yeah, the, the great divide really is between Indigenous and the rest of the population. The terms that go along with our indigenous homeless Mm -hmm. is often related to being drunk or deserving it. And then you hear, or you see a completely different perspective when you deal with the lighter skinned population where, oh, they need addiction services. Uh, They're just like crack addicts, you know, Mm -hmm. and that Outlook on our home, our homeless community, it's very vile towards in indigenous um, persons. Yeah. Especially That's- to those who fly in for medical attention um, from the reserve.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: We have some of the best medical services that we can provide in all of the areas around us. So they often get flown into our hotels. They're here on medical purposes with like government. Provided money for food and to to help them survive, and then people just are are so ready to say that they are undeserving of these services. So you guys like experience a lot of racism, like, and
2: I know that the racism that you guys experience is very different, well, very similar to like black people, but very different in your own ways because it comes. They just assume a lot of things about you guys. They just assume that you guys are unable. Well,
1: there are terms for indigenous drunk people that people often use in conversation all the time because it's so widely accepted like we had a case here in thunder bay like two years ago where youth out of the back of a moving truck threw a trailer hitch at an indigenous woman and she died really and then what happened to the youth that did that there was a lot of uproar But they got parole, and it was a hate crime, 100%. And it was not deemed as such. It was just manslaughter. There's many cases as well with the Thunder Bay Police Force, who have consistently shown to be more aggressive and violent towards Indigenous people, or to even cause bodily harm my mother her mom had mental health problems she was from the first uh, fort william first nations reserve mm-hmm. and she she was a first nations indigenous woman uh, our last name was thunder <laughs> uh. and apparently the story is that she was left with the rest of her uh, siblings in a cabin in the woods for seven days before they got found um and just all the kids got put into care that was my great grandma my grandma she yeah she lived on the reserve somewhere in this period of time my mom doesn't really talk about it a lot with me um probably for great reasons but somewhere in this period of time um they were taken from my my great my grandma and put into various white presenting families yeah The Sixties Scoop took indigenous youth specifically and put them into homes with white families instead of the WECO services, which are indigenous based uh, here in Thunder Bay. And they, I hear they do great stuff. I don't work specifically with them. Instead of putting them in trying to do the approach that to does where they keep the youth in the family, they keep them in culturally inclusive families, they make sure they have ties to their religion of choice. They put them into children's aid. So a lot of youth who were indigenous went to children's aid for some reason.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And that, uh, that that caused quite an uproar. Yeah. A lot of the, the scoop wasn't like trying to help. They didn't bring services to these families. It was specifically pinpointing Troubled families and taking their youth away.
2: Yeah, I almost like to break up that family, and I do notice like that is a thing that's talked about a lot. Is that especially in the d- indigenous and black communities, is that like seeing um, us doesn't make things better for the kids. They've actually made it a lot more traumatic and almost to keep them in poverty. You know, at least that's what they used to do. Um, not really What's entirely sure
1: They are working towards recollection. A lot of youth are being replaced from Children's Aid into Delico. A lot of cases, youth have been provided services that often were not, like they choose cultural connections. I was put in a group, a doctor's office that has Indigenous services. Mm -hmm. I asked for it. I do want to say that I'm not shitting on the current Children's Aid Society's approach to childcare. It is being reformed by advocates like us, and they are open to change after what has been done. Mm -hmm. A lot of cases are, um, I know it's a small comfort, but getting monetary um, advances for the hardship that has been put on their lives, and uh, legislation is changing. Mm -hmm. I am talking solely about in the past for this specifically. Mm -hmm. I was not taken from care because i was indigenous but my mother was yeah and the part of racism that's rampant throughout thunder bay is mostly the general public which is very hard when trying to push for legislation changes
3: Mm -hmm.
1: because you have plenty of workers who are on the side of change we have lots of small groups here that are advocating but it's the general public it's the people who run our newspaper it's 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 that sort of thing mm-hmm. and it's very difficult to watch.
2: I'm kind of curious like what was your experience like in the foster care system um, I know that like, your parents went
1: through like a lot for sure but do you think that you know you were treated well? In my case Addiction services and services for rental agreements with the city probably would have saved my family. We were poor, we had our problems, but like many other families, those struggles don't necessarily call for intervention. Yeah. They call for assistance. Exactly. Exactly. And so they use the money to pay the foster parents. To take care of us that could have just saved our family we struggled we had our financial issues and we did have we did need someone to come and provide these services to my my parents because they were at a loss nonetheless we got put into care when i was about for about the first time i ended up i was with my two brothers we were all in the same family mm-hmm. um and then we, we came back home we were we're working on getting things better my parents were trying to jump through the hoops to show that uh they could to get us back but um like I said they it wasn't it was like it was more of a another trauma to add on to what they already had getting their kids taken away um in that moment how are you supposed to have the clarity to get sober to do this to do that to get your kids back
2: yeah exactly and I know that you had like your own like Uh, barriers with like addiction I'm not sure if you're comfortable like talking about that but the reason why I find it just really like um just important to talk about is because although I never had an addiction myself I've been in group homes where people suffering from addiction was always around me and I knew how incredibly difficult that was because people didn't know how to cope with their emotions. I didn't know how to cope with my emotions so I you know I didn't have a coping mechanism. I didn't go to drugs, but I did suffer mentally for it um, and had a severe amount of PTSD. Um, but I noticed that the staff in my group home, the people in the child welfare system, didn't know how to deal with people with addictions. They didn't know how to provide them with the services to get that rehabilitation so they can continue to move on to the next point of their life. I was the one that was constantly having to step in and to support
1: them. It's not about cutting cold turkey and yeah. starting a new life. It takes time takes effort it takes supports it takes um a a variety of different events you need your like the main thing you need is a support system when you deal with addiction to get better and when you intervene in a family take the youth away that's often the parents support system Mm -hmm. especially if they're struggling and don't don't have much else family is usually like the one thing you'll see in a lot of traumatized situations that it's the family against the world and that's how we were we we were skeptical of of everybody yeah with addiction with my own bouts and then my my parents and onwards it it's not generational but I wanna say that I feel the scars of my of my parents' addiction when I'm dealing with my own, because it's, it's a direct, it's like looking directly in a mirror and saying, when in your weakest times that I am my parents, I'm the reflection of my parents mm-hmm. and I'm failing, you know? Whereas with support and hope, uh, you have the people around you to, Get out of that
3: mm-hmm.
1: um but yeah so i went to care when i was about six came got back out when i was nine turning 10 in december that march i had been living in the monroe motel um in downtown thunder bay and my dad was living in the family house we mm-hmm. were having problems just like communicating with my parents. Um, so we were all living in the motel and my dad was living by himself in the family home. My little brother passed away. My youngest one. Uh, we, yeah, he was was six months old. Um, it was SIDS. So he just sudden infant death syndrome, you know, it happens. Uh, but I found the body and it, it was a lot. Uh, we, we had a lot of problems. That is probably the one moment where, uh, it all dissolved. We went back into care, but this time they, they couldn't really place us all in the same home. I was too old and there's three of us, you know, I, I was starting to get up there in age. I was t- like nine or 10, even for, even for us, that's starting to get a little old, um, yeah. So we, yeah, they couldn't find a place to place us all. And I went to a foster house, 23 kilometers out in the country and my boys stayed in the city and yeah, they, they ended up going to live with my grandmother in Winnipeg. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And then I was in care for quite a while. I, I, yeah, I was in care for quite a while and I finally aged out. Um, well, I'm not technically aged out. I went on independence when I was 17 or 16. Yeah. yeah I was pretty young. That that was difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was still going to school. I ended up graduating, going to college, dealing with my own addiction, trying to deal with a, a toxic relationship at that time. Mm-hmm. And I was just unprepared to take on what I was dreaming of doing, which was taking my brothers in a care. Yeah. And so that was kind of like a catalyst movement of, hey, like this, they're struggling. Like they're, they're having a really rough time with this. I need to be there. Mm-hmm. So I got clean. For those who don't know, my, my drug of choice was morphine. So I had uh, withdrawals for about a week and a half. I got evicted from the place I was staying. Like, were you staying in a group home or a foster home? At this point, I was, I tried to go back and live with my mom, like my birth mother. Okay. She left me for like a week, (laughs) high and dry. So that's why I started coming down. The the officer showed up and we, I got evicted when my mother wasn't there. So I had to like pack up all my stuff and find a place immediately because I didn't have a place to sleep that night. And I I did find a place and and like resourceful and there's, there's always something you can do. Mm -hmm. But I struggled, and then things got easier. I started diving into advocacy work. I got into music. I started diving into culinary and all of these different things to distract myself from what was going on. Mm -hmm. Um, it, It was a productive coping mechanism. I had a lot of ones that were not. Mm -hmm. I know it's not the best one to constantly distract yourself, but when you're in a stage of survival, you can't be worried about anything other than coping. Like you can't be working on self-improvement and having all of these, it's like the hierarchy of needs. If you don't have your base needs, how are you supposed to be working on anything else? Yeah, that is powerful. Recently, I like very recently, had been able to tell myself and tell those around me that I was in a position to take on my brothers.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I, did the, I did what I had to. I'm still taking the foster parent course at the local Thunder Bay um, Children's Aid so that I can be not just a, a guardian, but a foster parent in the future, mm-hmm. if you aren't my brothers. But yeah, right now I'm guardian of the two youth that are still currently in care. And the story doesn't end with me. The the trauma carries on with them. Um, They have a very unique position where they know, and they have known for quite a while that the stigma of young men in care is rampant. As soon as they turned teenage boys, I think they kind of knew that nobody wanted them yeah and that trauma i see it in day-to-day um activities i see it in how they present themselves i see it in how they talk and how they uh call themselves stupid for having mm-hmm. and how they talk about how they're just a paycheck and i have to remind them that they're not but it's that trauma has carried on from three generations and that's just incredible. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm hoping to break that cycle. We're learning, we are, there's days that are quite difficult, obviously. But every day they tell me they love me. And every day my one of my brothers gets so excited, he cannot s- physically sit still. And I get to see that. The other day I had the youngest one come in and he told me that he knew that we were on his side and that we're working for him and he, he gave my boyfriend a bro five or whatever <laughs> it's times but he, he just kept saying like I know you guys are working for me mm-hmm. and like I understand what you're doing and that just meant the world to me to see that improvement that change that mm-hmm. I don't know I love you so much
2: yeah i love you so much you are something else really because your story is it's not unique well it is unique but it's so similar the things that you have mentioned that we've talked about uh um, is so similar it's so repetitive you i've been saying these things since i was in care the, the idea that i feel like a paycheck that is almost like a motto or a quote that all using care has probably said at least one time in their life you know your resilience I way you tell your story in itself it just definitely is going to make a lot of people emotional because I know it's already made me emotional I'm just thinking about how much like you've gone through and how much strength you have to have to survive that it's facts you can't focus on growth or ability or like accomplishments if you're Constantly surviving and figuring out how to cope with their
1: situation, you you hit that on the nail. We got to break that stigma yeah. that is behind youth and care, because the reasons we mm-hmm. the reasons we don't graduate as often, yep. the reasons why we don't thrive as well as the average Canadian youth mm-hmm. is a hundred percent because we. We're not giving the opportunity. We are, yeah. We're not giving the opportunity, and we start off with every youth who comes into care starts off with trauma. Mm-hmm. If it is from your family home, or is if it's from the situation itself of being taken away from your family, because you don't understand that what is going on is wrong, and that all you have is your parents, and now you have this force coming in to take away your family. Of course, you're going to be skeptical. Of course, you're going to act out. Of course, there's going to be issues. That does not necessarily mean, though, that every other youth doesn't.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, when you're taking on a youth from care, and uh, if you were to have a normal child, you should, a normal child, quotations, whatever, um, you are taking on the responsibility of accepting youth with disabilities, of accepting youth who are LGBTQ as Plus two. Um,
3: <laughs> I love you.
1: If you're taking on the responsibility of dealing with their traumatic experiences and you're not supposed to be doing it for money. Exactly. The, one, the only thing that I had a problem with is that even, even my own grandmother, when she was taking care of my brothers, when I called her to say, Hey, I'm taking, I'm taking on my younger sibling, my youngest sibling. Please just give me the information blah, blah, blah. She was like, okay, but how much are you getting paid from the agency? And I was like, it's like, it's nothing. like I'm the lowest amount possible. Like, I don't care. <laughs> I, I want my little brother to live with me. Mm-hmm. And was like, yeah, but you're supposed to be getting X, Y, Z. 90 plus 95 cents each day for this kid. And I was like, I don't care. Yeah. What I care about is his development and the fact that putting a dollar sign to the cent on his fucking life is irrespectable to your family. I like, I cannot believe that. And I understand that this is not like that was to someone who is their own, their own family. I myself was in situations where. My clothes and everything I own was thrown in garbage bags and chucked out of the house because I had makeup in my room and they couldn't handle me anymore. I remember being told that I wasn't allowed back in the house again one day. Mm -hmm. Just come home from school. All your stuff outside. And that's because there was a breaking point for these people. That oh, I don't realize what I got myself into and I don't have the proper training to take care of a youth. Because yeah. it's not just a problem with youth in care. It's a problem everywhere. Yeah. But it is a problem that is rampant in foster parents. Yeah. And they're not just youth. They're youth with trauma.
2: It's a whole nother level when you're dealing with somebody with trauma. Right?
1: It's a development, like you go through development with trauma Your ability to cope is it like, how are you supposed, how are you supposed to create healthy coping mechanisms when you can't even see your family?
4: Yeah.
1: You can't go see your friends because you now live in a foster home where you're allowed to go out on weekends Mm -hmm. and you're allowed one hour of online time a, a, a day. How are you supposed to, in these situations, unless given services, be on your way to success? Mm-hmm. I know in my own travels, I, I wanted to thrive. I had goals and dreams and ambitions, and I also wanted to die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was like walking on the edge of a knife every day. Yes. So my question would be, why...
2: Why did you choose, because this was a choice, when you hit so many of these barriers and been treated so poorly for so long, why did you choose to continue to fight and continue to live on and just be strong?
1: It took an insurmountable amount of drive, um, but it also took support. Honestly, I could not have done it at any other period of my life because the way that I got out, say, was by begging and pleading a poor doctor, like having a mental breakdown in a walk-in doctor's office, because I didn't have a family doctor at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I went to the walk-in. I had a complete breakdown, waited the two and a half hours, whatever, in the waiting room. And he was like, I'm, I'm sorry, miss, but like I am unqualified to deal with what you're dealing with right now. And I'm going to get you services and he gave me a prescription to circle and he gave me a prescription to Abilify um both are mood stabilizers one is an antipsychotic. once I reached out for help everything started to change
3: mm-hmm.
1: well, that's really depressing because help I shouldn't have had to reach the point where I was crying in a doctor's office yeah before somebody took me seriously um I've had a suicide attempt where I it was They, they had to bring me back and I was in the (laughs) ICU and then the mental health ward for 21 days and nothing came of it. I went back to my foster parents and they expected me to go back to school the next week. My own brothers, when they were with my grandparents, they had tried to kill themselves multiple times, had thrown a car into a tree and none of that warranted anything other than go talk to your doctor. I am still far from perfect. I have episodes where I have panic attacks during some PTSD episodes, and I don't sleep sometimes, I have nightmares, but things got so much easier once I reached out. Um, And that's why I push so hardly for these services in rural communities, because they have 10 beds in the hospital for youth mental health ward and they're always full yeah <laughs> you're constantly waiting to get into the mental health ward never mind to see someone to get services and then they're trying to get you out as fast as possible because they need the next person in that bed for me reaching out was what what saved me I had an incident with my younger brother uh here when we were we were having some anger management problems because he, he was just he couldn't do it he he was just kind of losing it a bit. And I took him to, we had to get him to the mental health ward. And once he calmed down, like they gave him something to calm him down. And then that was it. They said to bring him home. And that that's all they were going to do. There's been no follow-up. And there's been incidents afterwards where we've had to have intervention.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: it's just... People shouldn't have to get to their breaking point before they're offered help. Yeah, because like some of the programs that I know
2: that is out there right now, uh, especially uh, recently, is the Indigenous uh, Child Welfare Agencies. Do you think that they've been able to make a really big impact in the Indigenous community as a whole?
1: So I am a huge supporter of programs and services offered by Delico. I don't personally know Delico and how it handles its cases in its workers. I don't know anything about that, but I do know about the type of services they offer and the fact that their motto and their whole game plan is about keeping youth within the family. Mm -hmm. So the main main point when a youth is taken out of care is to contact other family members and look for kinship
3: Mm -hmm.
1: before putting a youth in an emergency home or somewhere else their Mm -hmm. first thing is to keep them in the family and I think that's pretty incredible that approach I don't know how it's being implemented I don't know if it's um how it's how it's being regulated and such I can't speak on that but I do know that the concept itself is something that I support greatly um because my whole two things that I would change with children's aid would be it's efforts on prevention instead of dealing with the aftermath of situations, dealing, yeah. with preventing situations.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And
2: that. <laughs> yeah, like the current child welfare system is a lot more reactive rather than progressive. That was a quote that I've heard from Jane Kovarkova and I really stand by it. They weren't very much about prevention, as you were saying. They were just extremely reactive. If something happens, then that is when they will take action. And it's unfortunate because it just led to a lot more destruction in the lives of the youth. And they ended up worse off because of how the system was structured. And we see it clearly as you were mentioning in the rates of dropout of dropouts of high school um, youth and also just like the homelessness um, in Ontario is just ridiculous. And I'm I also, glad that they're trying yeah. I'm glad that they're starting to make changes and t- take it a lot more seriously. And now approaching child welfare differently completely and restructuring it because they know that it hasn't been working for decades. And we're now in 2021, right?
1: Well, let's talk about um, that little project that, uh, that Connor is working on. Oh here. yeah.
2: <laughs> the readiness indicators.
1: The readiness indicators. Okay, I, I'm i I'm a slut for the readiness indicators <laughs> I'll call it right now. Okay. Um, I think it's beautiful. That is an example of prevention, yes. Like, oh my God, when, wouldn't that be something to work with a youth prior to them aging out to give them the resources that they need before it happens? Yeah, How and then giving own them own the own time, own giving own. them the
2: ability to decide, quite frankly, when they're ready to be independent and to be stable. Right? It's just brilliant.
1: And that approach, where it's uh, youth at the forefront, is also what we should be doing when we take youth into care Mm
2: -hmm.
1: is, okay, so for the betterment of this child, yes, it needs to be taken away from this current situation. Okay. Mm -hmm. That is understandable. I needed to be taken away from the situation I was in. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: I didn't need to be placed with a random family, Mm -hmm. especially one that wasn't equipped for the trauma that I experienced.
3: Exactly.
1: There are packages and there are courses now that are offered to foster parents but it's not like it's necessary like you take the training you take the pride training and the trauma and the beautiful brain and then you get your house inspection and you can have a kid get your criminal records checked you're good but um i think there should be a lot more oversight into how we who we put our youth with because If this youth is experiencing just the same amount of trauma, just in a different household, how is that okay? How have you come and intervene and made this child's life better? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you intervene and you give services, you provide insight, you give um, Mm -hmm. the family chances, it stops the cycle. Yeah, yeah. I am now aware of how much foster parents get paid. I'm pretty pretty fucking aware of it now and how dare you tell me you can't give that to a poor family and have them survive off of it right because more than enough yes more than enough to yes. take care of youth and like i'm sorry you still get tax breaks you're still taking care of the youth like i'm you shouldn't get any money to fucking take care of a youth you should have to it should be like adopting a pet you when you go in and adopt a pet you have the registration for adopting a pet is longer than the application process for youth and care.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Like you have to pay for applications for pets. You have to pay for the supplies for pets up front. Mm-hmm. You have to show that you can provide a livable condition for your pet before you get your pets from any adoption place or any shelter in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For our youth in care, we cannot provide that same. Yeah,
2: that's, that's so true. Right now, what do you think that, or what kind of services do you think that you would very much benefit from now, or do you think it, are gaps currently in Thunder Bay that we Thunder. may even know about in Toronto that we have access to?
1: Well, um, I there's two things that I push in every meeting, every committee, anything that I'm at, yeah. and that's mentorship and okay. transitional housing yes nice mentorship my god do we need mentorship um i've been recently trying to get my brothers into some sort of mentorship program and we don't have one Mm
3: -hmm.
1: but um unless you go to alcoholics anonymous which is which is religious religious and not exactly what we're looking for there's not a lot of services yeah when i was a care i had one great worker and she wasn't a worker. She was a third party person that came from like out of town. And it was, she came and she mentored me. She would take me on lunch dates and I wouldn't have to talk to her because like therapy wasn't working. They, they tried to put me into trauma therapy after my little brother died, but I, it just wasn't working for me. I was like nine. Of course it wasn't. Um, so they paired me up with a mentor. And I still have a book from her chilling on my bookstand of pictures of us together doing everyday things and yeah. that meant more to me and I opened up to her more than any other person in the world
4: yeah
1: she had lived experience she she was she was from the child we- welfare system she knew how it worked
4: yeah is that um,
1: important to you that was incredibly important
4: mm.
1: so a big sister brother big sister program where you match up youth with former youth from care or you match them up with um caregivers with previous like new caregivers with previous caregivers mm-hmm. uh, mentorship in any capacity it would really benefit our community because not only would that help because I know you know this helping other youth as a former youth in care like yeah. fills that void of like this happened to me and I'm doing nothing about it oh yeah I preach about it all the time trust me you fill that void but um no, so like the mentors are getting that out of it and then the youth themselves finally have someone to connect with that isn't a worker isn't going to document what they say doesn't have an ulterior motive other than to be your friend yes, yes. and I know how hard it is to talk to like a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a worker sometimes because you do have to be careful about what you say sometimes yeah and exactly. just say I want to off myself today Melissa and then Melissa's like Oh, well,
2: that's the thing. Oh, my God. You just hit on such a big thing because, like, yo, we can't, it's hard for us to be able to get help when we have to restrict what we have to say all the time when it comes to workers or psychiatrists or even getting professional help. And knowing that if we open up to you, we might be unsafe. By doing that, it's, there's so many reasons why us people with trauma are so untrustworthy of other individuals, and we need to be able to bond with people who understand us. And that's probably the most helpful and beneficial type of recovery or healing is being able to bond with other people because they won't judge you if we're connecting with people who experience the same thing as us. As
1: people are always so afraid that if they don't lie to their therapist, they're gonna get committed. Yeah. Whereas mental health should be, I have talked to this person, this elder this person in my community who is older than me I need help they're gonna help me get these services and provide me with insight
3: mm-hmm.
1: whereas you go and sometimes when you have to like restrict what you're saying and you're, and you're not in the capability of speaking freely what how do you progress from there
4: yeah
1: but yeah and then some mentorship the first one and then transitional homes God, do we need transitional homes? Transitional homes, for people who don't know, are houses or apartment buildings that are divided up into apartments that have licensed staff, not group home staff, that are unlicensed and wildly unprepared for taking mm-hmm. care of many children at one time. <laughs> Look at
2: you, Kia. I love
4: you.
1: Yeah. But licensed yeah. staff members that have um, like a therapist on site or that have um, like contact information on site and mm-hmm. They are, the apartments are paid for with um, the government money, but the youth have to take care of the place themselves and take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. So instead of a group home where you adhere to the the rules of the group home and everybody is living in one common area, these kind of promote independence and are a gateway in between being care or being in a sketchy situation a family situation and being able to be out on your own mm-hmm. so in some places you don't have you have the security net of knowing that your house is safe this house is yours your rent is paid okay so now what do I take care of I take care of my bills I take care of myself I save up money I now I can focus on the next level in the hierarchy of needs mm-hmm. you know I can start focusing on going back to school I can focus on getting a job because now they do have to do all these things themselves but they have the social supports there if they need it mm. and that security net is what is so important um moving i was talking to my boyfriend and moving he has always had the security net of being able to go back to his mother's yeah. if something happened his mother would always be there for him whereas with you think and care you don't you can't like i tried going back to my mom's and that ended horribly mm. You can't do that. You can't run back to the family that caught, before you've dealt with the trauma that they have caused. Yeah. And not only that, but not having that security blanket of knowing that your home is safe, you're not focusing on anything else.
2: Mm-hmm. very true. I kind of wanted to just really ask a couple more questions for you if you're cool. What do you think that, right, what do you really think that the Indigenous community needs in order to heal from their past? knowing what, you know, our the history was like with Canada and with residential schools, what do you think is needed to heal?
1: God, isn't that a question? Right? The main, the main thing I think is necessary to heal is for money to go back into the reserves. Uh, for home to be, communities to be rebuilt, because we can provide services here in town, we can, but Um, how do you feel a part of a community when this community isn't providing anything to your home? Mm
3: -hmm.
1: One of the services that I would probably say is definitely some re-education services, because I think people are kind of mistaken about how short in our past this was. Yeah. Uh, Putting some, some easy references for people Like, hey, did you know that somebody's grandmother could have been in a residential school? Did you know that our last residential school closed this year? You know, re-educating the general public because we can't continue being like, oh yeah, we accept you as a part of our community and then have the general public be like, no, we don't. (laughs) Yeah. Like, yeah, it's all great to put out well-written documents saying that you're sorry. Yeah show it exactly oh show it mm. put the money back into the reserve. how about we make sure that all our reserves have clean drinking water mm. or why don't we make sure that they have access to medical supports if needed or just normal things like internet mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um basic things that people here take for granted that are not in their communities they shouldn't have yeah they shouldn't have to travel eight hours for a hospital yeah yes yes That's As so, why are why are we letting the reserves go into complete shambles yeah like they don't
2: have access to not only that i've heard like just even uh, uh, being able to get everyday stuff in certain reserves. um like i think in more so like the north territories their produce and stuff is outrageously expensive like,
1: they are not, it's just so unfair and unequal. Some service that I think should be provided, y'all are ever thinking of, like, making food boxes for people to send to, like, reserves and stuff? Think about the fact that they have probably been eating rice and beans forever. Wow. Please provide them with a fruit. A <laughs> yes, yes. Like we'll an apple. Give them- God, God, God damn, give them an apple. Because what do poor people get all the time? They get canned food. They get, they get basic food staple rice in every like because I've had to use community boxes before I'm not ashamed to say it and when you get them you get like food rice pasta pasta okay you're like so I'm gonna eat buttered noodles for a week yeah uh, and like, uh, I know you can't be um, picky but if you are helping out a community it shouldn't be like the bare minimal yeah you have to um,
2: think about like their nutrition if you want to legitimately help them help their nutrition and not necessarily just feed them because that's not uh, as
1: helpful no yeah but like toys for youth snacks i remember in one bin from um a, a service that children's aid provided i got like a snack in one of the boxes and i was fucking overjoyed <laughs> <laughs> so like think about these kids that are like on the in the middle of nowhere i'm, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure like if you want to help out and you really want to feel like you helped out give the kids some fruit gushers like something special so they feel right? special you know yeah. and it doesn't have to be expensive like what's a pack I of food you
2: know like if you want to send them like over some electronics and stuff like that that would be dope too like legitimately you know if you have the ability to why not right that's the way I think of it I don't want to just give if I were to give I don't want to just give the bare minimum I would probably want to make that person feel special and when they look and they see something they receive something they'll be like oh wow I wasn't
1: expecting that wow, wow so much respect for certain groups here because there are certain companies that will provide food to like the do drop-in which is our local food kitchen one of them yeah. and they they don't say anything they don't advertise they don't do anything but I found out working there that they will provide things that others won't so Nanaimo bars I remember for Christmas everyone got Nanaimo bars and they were fucking stoked yeah and I just wanted to put that in there that, like, when dealing with services, if you're providing a half-assed service, then you aren't really doing them any favors. Exactly. Maybe doing the bare minimum to get it off your chest that you did something, but it also, like, feels like the person who gets that feels like the bare minimal.
2: Last question is, what is something that you know now that you wish you knew while while still in the foster care system? It could be legislative, it could be just personal or growth-wise.
1: There's a couple things I would have wished to know. I would have wished to know that I got an allowance the whole time I was in Children's Aid. That would have been cool. You didn't get one? No, not, oh. not, until, not until I grew out. I never knew. They just took it and didn't tell wow. me. Wow. What? Yeah. what? So we have more group activities with kids like me. Like you can and stuff? Yeah, because th- that opportunities. those opportunities that we get, like me and you, We found the Youth for Change Committee probably the same way by fluke. Yep. And that's how all of these opportunities are. Like, youth and care aren't aware of anything other than what's in that basic rights book. Yeah. They don't know about the opportunities that are available to them, the services that they can ask for. And these are things that your parents would tell you. Your parents would tell you how to do your taxes. Yeah. Yeah. Or they would tell you about when tax season is yeah they would tell you about things like what not to trust and who not to trust and how to achieve your dreams yeah we sit down once a year and we write out a goal plan for okay so she's going to attend school she's going to go to her doctor's appointments and she's going to do this you sign it and then tada you're you're done for the year they don't follow up on your goals and ambitions and i just think that having a community member that provided these kind of insights would have really helped yeah for those who are still or have made it to the end of the podcast thank you so much for continuing
2: to listen and join us along on our journey we've had such a really great conversation with you today and it's just I'm so happy to see her again. She's such a wonderful person. Obviously this is not gonna be the first or the last time we have this conversation. I will see you guys next time.